This is the People Make Things podcast, a behind-the-scenes look at the modern entertainment industry. I'm your host, Christopher Natsume. I'm a game developer, I'm a podcaster, I'm a live streamer, and I'm also an entrepreneur. The internet knows me a little bit better as Night Squirrels. All right, and we are back, and today we are talking to Edward Lee, who was born in Hong Kong, raised in Canada, and now he's in Hong Kong. He's the co-founder and CEO of Twitchy Finger, which is a game studio. He's also the managing director and producer at Mana Sound Studio, also in Hong Kong. He's proud of a lot of things in his life, but in the last few years, he's, he's been building this mobile gaming company, and I wanted to talk to him about this process, building a studio, and, well, that's where we are. Hi, mm-hmm. Edward, how you doing? Hi, Chris. Uh, it's very. I'm very honored to be on this podcast, and hi, everyone. So I want to jump right into some 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 sort of broad questions. We've been mm-hmm. doing kind of a tour through Southeast Asia, and we've had people from Indonesia and the Philippines and all these other great places talking about games in their region. And we haven't mm-hmm. had anyone from Hong Kong yet. So I want you to tell me. Nice. What what do I need What do I need to know about Hong Kong? What's the What's the big broad strokes for understanding the game market in Hong Kong? Well, uh, first of all, I think if, for those who have not been in Hong Kong, it's, uh, although it's part of China, it's, uh, it's a independent governed state, I guess, city. Mm-hmm. So, uh, it used to be an ex, uh, British colony. So there's a very, it's like a melting pot between the East and the West. Uh, so for the game companies here, you're looking at, you know, there are local game companies and they're, you know, game companies, the founders are from all over the world. So you got this nice mixture of both, like Hong Kong itself, very East and West cultures all combined together. So, I mean, when I'm when I'm looking at the games, you know, if I if I go to China and I look at games in China, I kind of mm-hmm. know what Chinese games look like. Yeah. Do Hong Kong games look like Chinese games? Do they look like Taiwanese games? What what, what does a game look like in what what's popular in the world of mm-hmm. games in Hong Kong? Well, uh, if you look at the, like App Annie, th- this analytics platform that yeah. shows the top, you know, grossing or top downloaded game in China. Mainly, you look at like MMORPGs, uh, some puzzle game, but mainly RPG games. Uh, for Taiwan, similar as well. But in Hong Kong, it's like a mixed bag. So you got these, you know, westernized games like, uh, you know, Clash Royale, and then you got all these like um, for paid games. You got you got games like uh, what's that puzzle game with a really nice art? Uh, suddenly, uh, <laughs> it's like a thousand. <laughs> like a thousand yeah, yeah. Games. What's that puzzle uh, game with a good art? Oh yeah, that it's, one. <laughs> I just had it in my phone. Uh, anyways, I put my phone away. So it's they have this mixture of like these very um, Chinese Asian style games, but they also you know they are really into the casual, more westernized games as well. So you got a mixture of both. Uh, since you know the crowd here, you know um, some of them are, are expats, and there's a lot of like overseas people like you know came back to Hong Kong, you know such as myself. So tell me about language. I mean, because Hong Kong is this like way, you know, there's all kinds of different mm-hmm. language things going on there. Obviously, because it's part of China now, there's Mandarin. Because yeah. it's Hong Kong, there's Cantonese, mm-hmm. and and obviously because of the British, you know, background, there's English. What language are people playing games in? Uh, it's either in Chinese uh, or in English. So it works either way. And the default language here in Hong Kong is Cantonese and English. So, you know, a- anyone knows English. But I mean, if, if I'm doing voiceovers in a game that I'm putting in Hong Kong, I'm doing that in Cantonese, I'm not doing that in Mandarin? 
Uh, th- that's the localization thing. Uh, so mainly in Hong Kong, people speak a, a dialect of, you know, Chinese is, is the overall arcing umbrella term. So within Chinese, there's different dialects and Mandarin is the prevalent one right now, the official language of China. Uh, in Hong Kong, uh, mainly most people speak Cantonese. It's a regional dialect. So for most people who want to play some localized games or games that are made in Hong Kong, uh, if they're doing voiceovers, they would prefer uh, in local Cantonese, but English is just as fine. So tell me about platforms. What what are they playing on in Hong Kong? Is it PC? Is it Steam? Is it iOS? Is it Android? What what what's the what are people playing? Well, if you're talking about like consoles, you know the main ones are mm-hmm. PlayStation Four, Xbox One, and then PC. You know, Steam's a big market in Hong Kong as well. A lot of people play Steam games. Uh, as for mobile, it's mainly iOS and, and Android, you know, just like the rest of the world. But I mean, which, because if you look at different markets, some are like, no, nah, we don't really do a lot of iOS here. It's all Android. Mm-hmm. Like if I go down the deep Southeast Asia, uh, yeah. nobody's got an iPhone in Indonesia. It's all Android. But if I go to the States or, or even in, in Japan, it's very heavily yeah. iOS. What is, what's Hong Kong? It's, uh, I think it's a pretty even split. Mm. So, because um, Hong Kong does have one of the highest ARPUs in the world. Yeah. Uh, so, uh, iOS is a big thing. I think everyone, I, most people I know use iOS, but, you know, it's a mixture. It's pretty much half and half, I think. So, for those who don't know ARPU, that's that's uh, average revenue per user. So, what we're yes. saying is a a user in Hong Kong, you know, if I get 10 users in Hong Kong, those users are going to give me more money than, say, 10 users in Indonesia or the Philippines. Yep. Uh, yep. How many users are we talking about? How big is the market in, in Hong Kong? Well, in Hong Kong, there's currently around 7.2 million people. That's a lot of people. Uh, yeah, and basically, you're talking about everyone has a smartphone now, you know, yeah. except, except you know, really elderly people. But um, everyone has a smartphone. It's not their first smartphone. It's probably their fifth or fourth smartphone because in Hong Kong, you know, people are very fickle. They love the newest and the trendiest things. So every new iPhone or Samsung Galaxy S8 or whatever, any type of new phone that comes out, you know, they have it. So actually, Hong Kong is where I buy all my phones. I make a point of when I go through Hong Kong, I always buy my phone there because the I don't uh, the rest of the world doesn't know this. There's a law in Hong Kong that you can't lock phones in Hong Kong. And And it's also the it's the world. I think it's the biggest gray market. Is for it? smartphones, yeah, yeah. Because before, when um, China didn't have iPhone yet, mm-hmm. like uh, they didn't have the Apple Store, um, that's where all the mainland Chinese people get their uh, iPhones directly shipped from Hong Kong. Yeah, it's like Hong Kong yeah. is like the the shopping mall of Asia. Like it's where yeah. everybody's like, I'm gonna go do a big shopping trip in Hong Kong. I'm gonna buy my electronics. I'm gonna buy my brand name stuff and bring it home. Japanese people do that. Singaporeans yeah, do a, that. It's a tax report, so you know you can bring anything in. We won't tax you. You can buy anything when you leave. We won't tax you either. So, so it's all good to go. So, why is this market important? I mean, it's it's seven million people, which is that's a lot mm-hmm. of people, and it's seven million, you know, well-heeled, uh, technically competent, you know, seven million people that matter to the world of mobile games, etc. But, but I I think Hong Kong has sort of a, a larger. Uh, role in Asia than just those seven million people. It's yeah. my my feeling that it's almost like a like a trend leading part of Asia. Well, partly it's because um, Hong Kong has been a very has a very strong financial background. It's mm-hmm. one of the you know main financial centers of the world. So and it's also one of the big international hubs. So it's been you know ever since the economic boom of this of the seventies and eighties. You're talking about um, a lot of the you know uh, the financial 
you know trends and also the real estate market you know it leads in you know it's one of the most expensive places to live in in the world right now i think it's ranked number one yeah. in cost of living so um people do have a very strong association with you know the trend and what's new uh the latest and greatest so um you know there's not at this point a technology uh, technology wise um they don't lead in anything but they in terms of using it you know a usage mm-hmm. and um actual purchasing power uh, hong kong has you know a very high high quality of standard for living i think it's also i mean and you correct me if i'm wrong but but it seems to me hong kong is also sort of a culturally leading place in the chinese speaking world that that a lot of style is set there a lot of trends I, are set there yeah, because uh, uh, traditionally, uh, before mainland China was open uh, to the West, um, all the entertainment and media, uh, a lot of them came from Hong Kong. Mm. So, um, like the TV shows, the movies, uh, pop songs, a lot of the cultural stuff comes from Hong Kong. So, uh, even up to now, you see that most of the big stars that are making movies in China are all Hong Kong uh, mm. locally, you know, local stars that that became big. Even like Donnie Yen, you know, Star Wars, you know, mm-hmm. Rogue One. Yeah. So he's he's a big he's a big Hong Kong film star. So you know, in that terms, you know, entertainment wise, they still lead in Asia. But in, in right many now, ways, can, it's, it's almost like the Los Angeles of Asia in in a lot uh, of ways. Well, back then, I, I guess in the eighties and nineties. Now I think that we're losing a lot of ground to to uh, to Koreans. <laughs> That's absolutely true, actually. Yeah. So I want to switch gears a little bit. So that's Hong Kong. Um, yeah. Let's talk about your role in Hong Kong. And I want to start talking about Twitchy Finger, which is which mm-hmm. is your game studio. And I, yep. I want to just get the quick background on where you guys – a lot of people who are listening to this are entrepreneurs, and they want that entrepreneurial mm-hmm. story. How did you get started? How did you get funded? How did you get the place built? Tell me, tell me the story of Twitchy Finger. Sure. I'll try to give it in three minutes or less. You know. Done. Basically, uh, we started this company in 2014. It's me and two other founders. And uh, I wasn't in the gaming background before. I was actually in the entertainment background. Uh, and it's not my first company. I have another company that does uh, post-production and media, media uh, marketing production. So uh, I've started out doing a lot of uh, music work for films, commercials, and such. And then um, my current partner, he used to work for one of the big game companies in Hong Kong. And um, as um, as you know, like the music industry is kind of it's not as good as before because no one buys music anymore. So you know, I kind of transitioned from you know making music as a music producer uh, for pop songs and moved on to the more commercial films, you know, um, and and you know and such. And then I guess three or four years ago, um, I realized there's a market for you know mobile gaming music. And then uh, that's when I, you know, that's when me and my partner, who was my friend before, you know, we used to go to the same school. I was asking him, like, how, how's, like, the whole mobile game market? He's like, oh, it's, like, booming right now. And then he actually outsourced some of the music uh, for my studio to do. And eventually I was looking at it because I didn't play mobile games before. And then that's when I start looking at, like, Candy Crush, mm. uh, Clash of Clans. And then I'm like, oh, my goodness, like people would pay 99 cents just for like three extra moves or like some gems, but they wouldn't buy, they won't pay like 99 cents for an iTunes song, which is like what we do. We spend like months making a song and no one like, no, it's you know, infuriating. Are, it's absolutely exactly, infuriating. Exactly. But then, you know, out of that, you know, um, I see there's, there's an opportunity there. So I was looking, Hey, can we actually do something like this with a small budget and a small team? And after I get guess months of like preparation, just doing research, and we found that you know I think we can do it in Hong Kong, and that's when we started Twitchy Finger. 
So, I mean, it seems, I, I mean, sure, we talked about Hong Kong, and it's it's a culturally leading place, and it's got lots of talent and whatnot. Seems like an expensive place to run a studio from. It is. It's very expensive. Um, rent is just off the charts. And, you know, I, I was lucky because um, I didn't start from scratch. You know, I already started a company, and we already have an established studio and office. So uh, basically what we did was we combined the two you know, game studio and the music studio together into one one office, and then mm-hmm. we've been working out of there instead. Yeah, because I mean, I've I've heard horror stories about the rent there and the the kind of spaces that people live in, the places that people work. I mean, what's what's your office like? Is it is it like one of these little places I see on the internet that's all tiny and everyone's crammed into little tiny desks and? Tiny is tiny is very relative term, I guess. Like <laughs> in North America, tiny would be like, I don't know, well, like. 700 square foot is like tiny or, or 600 square foot but like in hong kong that's a pretty sizable office so our studio right now is um our studio side is 700 square foot 600 ish mm-hmm. so and then our other side which is the music studio part it's also another like 600 square foot so around combined around like 14 14 so how, how many how many people is this how many people you got crammed into that uh for our games company we have six people right now including myself mm-hmm. so we're still we're still relatively lean no, and that's that's the way to be. I mean, that's yeah, that's, that's the I, way to do it. It's yeah. it's so funny. I talked to so many people, and I remember when Boomzap got quite large, people would be like, "Wow, you must be really happy." And I'm like, "You don't understand this at all, do you? <laughs> like, <laughs> I am not at all excited about having a big studio. I would love to mm-hmm. be making this revenue with a lot less people. That would be better." So, yeah. <laughs> um, so, so speaking of that, I want to turn to your games, right? Mm-hmm. And I want you to kind of give me just a rundown of the games that you put together and, and which ones for you have been really successful. And kind of run me through what you guys have, have done as a game studio. Sure. Uh, as I've spoken before, uh, we started early 2014. Yeah. Uh, back then, we didn't have a full team. We only had like three people, just the founders. Mm-hmm. And then we got other people to come on. Eventually, we grew to six people. But in 2014, we only had like four people. So uh, we couldn't do like a full scale, you know, those hard to mid core games. So we did a, a very casual running game. Uh, and uh, it's called Furball Rampage. It's actually available on Android. Uh, it's not out on iOS, but it's on Android. It's really so, cute too. <laughs> yeah, it, it's it's a more American style, I guess, it, a more Disney-ish type mm-hmm. of style of a running game. So uh, we did that mainly to test out the team to see if we can actually, you know, it's one thing to work for a big company. It's different to, you know, come out and start your own own small indie indie label and you know make a game from scratch and market it yourself. So what we did was we wanted to stick with something that's simple. We can do it in like, you know, within four to five months. So, uh, you know, we set that goal out and see how much we can get, how much, you know, uh, revenue and stuff. So that was a, a test bed for our entire company. And uh, we launched the game in around July in 2014. It, it did decent. We did an Indiegogo campaign and we raised some funds for that. And uh, we basically we made back all, you know, all the money we spent on making the game. And that's when we realized, hey, you know, this this might work. So let's uh, let's start something that's a little bit more, you know, in-app purchase heavy, more mid mid-core game. So before we move on to the next game, yeah. I wanna I wanna talk just a bit mm-hmm. about that Indiegogo campaign you did, because I mean, this is something that a lot of yeah. entrepreneurs in the yeah. game industry are really interested in is crowdfunding. Yeah. How was that experience for you? Um, back then, uh, I guess crowdfunding still worked for like gaming. Mm-hmm. Uh, I wouldn't suggest that. Um, most people who do crowdfunding for mobile games, especially, it's very hard. Uh, cause 
to most people, um, you know, a game's free anyways, right? So yeah. why am I why am I giving you money well, for it's it? It's hard and, enough to get them to pay for it, to get them exactly. to pay in advance for a mobile exactly. game. Exactly. And the thing is, they they often know that oh, know that like it's free, and you guys get gonna have IAP anyways in that purchases. So so I don't think I should fund this. Another mentality is like, what I get back? Usually, because it's a digital game, there's nothing mm. in return. Mm. So what you do is you gotta have these all these perks, you know, for for your 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 backers, you know, whether it be T-shirts or physical products, uh, which often adds to the overhead of your campaign. So I would definitely not advise to use any of the crowdfunding for uh, your games uh, unless, you know, for the full production, unless you know that you can complete it. Say um, I'm already like 80% complete and I just need, you know, like $3,000, $5,000 more to finish this, then I guess you can attempt to do it. But if you're saying like I'm starting a, a whole project from scratch and I need this full amount of funding, like say like $10,000 um, to to fully fund this or else it won't work, I wouldn't suggest it because um, the, the partly is very hard to get funding. Second of all, um, it's very time consuming to run a crowdfunding platform. Yeah. Yeah, uh, the marketing, cause it's so big now, like even the, the, the big name publishers do it now, like Sega does it. You know, you got all these big, you know, uh, companies that are going on to this crowdfunding pl- platform. So it's very hard to stand out. And also, um, you gotta engage your, your users, you know, often, engage your backers and try to build word of mouth or, you know, viral marketing, whatever. It's very time consuming. And often for something that's not a physical product, say if you're making like a, a watch or if you're making some type of new new coffee machine, you know, definitely look towards crowdfunding. I think it, it definitely works. But if you're doing like a digital game, uh, even a Steam game, it, it would be quite hard to do, I think. Yeah, it's I mean, I, I one thing that I hear a lot if you go, you know, look at the Reddit's and whatnot and, and you hear a lot of people, they, they all I hear the same question a lot, which is does the crowdfunding campaign increased my marketing. I don't. I don't really need the money, but I just want to do it for the marketing. Did your? I guess you used Indiegogo. Did did your Indiegogo campaign work for you as a marketing vehicle, or did you end up spending more time marketing the campaign? And I mean, did it did it feel like it really improved your marketing at all? I guess it it helped somewhat to get the noise out. Um, I guess some some comp- like some publishers, not publishers, sorry, uh, some you know media outlets did pick up on the story. Did review a little bit on it, uh, but it's more of the the game itself than rather the the fun because we did have this little gimmick in the game. You know, it's about this hamster that eats like a certain radioactive seed that Godzilla type of thing. And then mm. you know, some people found that funny and and they found the comical, so they you know they they reported the aspect of that. Uh, but in terms of like, does it help? When your game launches, does it, you know, does it increase downloads? Uh, I don't think it really does in particular. So, um, you know, we raised enough uh, so that we could do some, help us do some marketing afterwards. But in terms of actual, you know, you know, is it a big help? I don't think it's, it's a learning experience. Uh, we, we learned a lot from it, but like any, you know, material type of, you know, benefit, I, it's not that much. All right, so I, I stopped you before on continuing on your next game. Now, now let's continue on. So you, you, you've sure. done Furball. What, what happens after that? So uh, we find that, you know, a casual game, it's, it's quite hard to do during that 
you know, back in 2014 because mm-hmm. you need the mass amount of downloads. So we went, you know, the opposite spectrum. We're like, okay, we can execute. So we know that we can ex- execute a game uh, from start to finish within a reasonable time. Let's do something a little bit deeper and something that's th- that can help us get more re- revenue because, you know, up to even now, we're still fully, you know, self-funded. Mm-hmm. So, you know, uh, we went with a game that was a little bit more mid-core so picking the topic was the hard part. Um, you know, what type of game can a six-person, you know, indie studio do? You know, we we you know, we can't touch anything. You know, basically we know that if we aim for something big like a puzzle game, or or you know, a game that's like Clash of Clans, it'll be very hard to do because we don't have the manpower, we don't have the marketing budget, and you're just going up against all the big boys. So what we do is uh, we find a very niche topic uh, with a very dedicated core group of users. And then we just made a game based on that. And the topic we ended up was uh, was uh, this toy that was very popular in the 90s, uh, in the 80s and 90s. It's called the Mini 4WD. So it's uh, one of the big, it's like a model car, but it's it's not a slot car. It's not a radio control car. It's a car that has a basic motor, batteries, and some gears. And once you, you can tune on the wheels, you know, the front, you know, the front bumpers and stuff, and it runs on a set track. So uh, those are very popular in Asia, especially if you're in Southeast Asia or in Japan. Uh, everyone's played play these, you know, if you grew up in the 80s and the 90s. So uh, and up to that point, there was still no game that was made based on that type of topic. So we picked, you know, Mini 4WD as a as a racing genre topic. And then we build a game upon it. Upon Just that. for the record, I had never heard of this before. I was I was I was doing some research. I was looking at the game yeah. and I was like, I've never seen it because I thought when I first saw it, I thought slot cars. This looks like slot cars, but it's yeah. not slot cars. It's something else. It's like Japanese slot cars. So yeah. uh, the the big company that that made it uh, made the the big waves in that segment was Tamiya. So that's that's one of the big model companies that makes like model toys, cars, mm-hmm. and stuff. So uh, they they never. Uh, using that that uh, you know that mini 4WD um, genre, so we took that and then we built our own game on that, and then ended it up. It was a it was a big hit. Um, so we have 3.4 million downloads right now. Wow. Yeah. So it's decent, you know, for such a niche topic. So um, that helped a, a lot. Like uh, I, I'm, I guess like most of your your listeners are you know maybe like indie developers or or people who who quite a few are of them. Trying, I guess. Yeah. So I would suggest, um, you know, it worked for us. It doesn't mean it will work for everyone, but like it worked for us. Uh, you know, try to find like a niche topic that, you know, the big companies don't really touch because, you know, 3.5 million downloads isn't a lot for the big companies, mm-hmm. you know, but it's, you know, but it's a lot for a small company like ourselves. And, uh, you know, just find something that, do some research, find something that was, that is popular or was popular. Uh, and no one really touched upon it, and then build a game on that. So you know? I want to I want to go a little deeper into that because you're not the first person who suggests this to me, and it's a really nice strategy. <laughs> so how did you reach out and let those people who are into that thing know that you'd made something for them? What was your marketing effort? What how did you push this to them and let them know that this thing was there? Well, uh, you know, right now you got Facebook and you got all these social media. Uh, pages and, and discussion forums that are dedicated to these hobbyists, right? So, like, if you're like a mini 4WD builder or a player and you love playing these these model cars, uh, most of you would join these, you know, Facebook pages or, or like Reddit's or whatever uh, that are dedicated to this 
you know this this digital you know this toy. So what we do is we just go on all these forums and Facebook page, and then we promote the game through that. I mean, did, top, you, did you did you buy ads on those sites, or did you like go in as a user and and like be uh, part we, of the community? How did you tell me? Go deeper into how okay. you did that. So basically, we started with like zero budget. We don't have any money to to do any marketing. Mm-hmm. Uh, so one of the first thing we did was uh, we we started our own page on Facebook. And then uh, we posted a lot on the topic itself, not the game, but just the topic. We post like all these cards that were popular, you know, all these tips and, and all these other things. Mm. We, we joined a lot of the pages as users to, you know, to get involved and, you know, see what people like and do do research and, you know, um, how much interest is still in, you know, mini W uh, mini 4WD. So we found that there's quite a lot of people that are interested in it. And, and, you know, during that time, there was like a renaissance of that. And a lot of people who grew up, you know, in their you know late twenties now, or early thirties, you know, they really like playing that as as a kid. But now they don't have the time to do it, and a lot of them are just lamenting, like, "Oh, I love the, these toys." You know, you know, they would buy the toy, but they don't have the time to race it, or they don't have the space to buy the tracks. So, you know, to them, it's it's something nostalgic. It was, you know, we participated in a lot of discussions with with a lot of these uh, uh, social media pages and groups. And they end up, as we're nearing completion, we started dropping hints. We're like, oh, you know, there's this game coming up that's, like, going to be based on on this this toy. And they're like, you know, instantly, you know, there's a lot of feedback. It's like, oh, that sounds awesome. You know, it was like, oh, tell me more. I'm like, oh, there's a page on Facebook, you know, called Mini Legend. And uh, this is the game that's coming up. So a lot of people went and checked out that page and liked it and kept following, you know, the, the status of, of the production. But and it sounds top, like to get to that point, though, it wasn't just that you went to those groups and just dropped and, you know, dropped something in their forums. Hey, we made mm. this thing. There was there was a long process before that of sort of getting to be part of that community. And uh, it's OK, because like I, I used to play these cars when I was, I was little. So I, I knew about the topic itself. Mm. So it's just like once in a while I would post something, you know, yeah, some old old cars that I used to have. And you know, just join in. It's it's not super active. Like maybe I go on, like you know, I check it out, you know, once or twice a week, and then just see mm-hmm. what people post. And then after we had some screenshots of the new game, I just posted it. And then you know, uh, um, it wasn't because you know it's still related to the topic, so people were very open-minded about it. You know, it wasn't like I was plugging anything. Another thing was, um, I guess there's a big thirst for for a, a game that's based on this genre. On this topic, so when we put it out, you know, there wasn't a lot of resistance. You know, mm. uh, end up there's a lot of support for it. So that's that's phase one, I guess, and that's when we start picking up all these Facebook likes on our page, and then that's that's one way of marketing. And then what we did after was just like try to once we build enough um, likes on the page, we start asking people to share or you know comment uh, on the post, and that that got word out further. And then the second step was actually contacting some of the local, you know, media or media outlets or like websites that cover, you know, hobbies or, or, or even like like video games. So we're, we're fortunate to find enough resources. Uh, we didn't have money, so we basically just told them, you know, we're making this game. It's based on this 90s toy. And, you know, uh, what do you think? And then, you know, the some of the media outlets thought, hey, that's you know that's cool. You know, like I remember playing these when I was little. It's like that's actually pretty cool. Like I haven't seen a game that's like that out there. So sure, we can you know we can write a a blurb or or you know an article on it. And that's how we you know started picking up steam. 
I guess one of the nice things there, it sounds like, is you know if if you're just making uh, you know another game that's that's just another computer game that's got you know orcs or goblins yeah. or or you know space marines or something like that in it, then the only real option you have is to go to the game sites and the game sites get a thousand emails a day, yeah. Yeah. right? But you had the option of going to these sort of specialist hobby forums, these specialist hobby medias, and saying, hey, you know, uh, fan magazine that that deals with this very specialized topic. We have a game for your specialized topic, which is a very different way of looking at it than, mm-hmm. hey, game site, we have a game for you. Yeah, yeah. So it's more like, you know, establishing a rapport first. Like, oh, did you ever play like Mini 4WD? And I guess if you're in Southeast Asia or in Asia in general, um, and if you're, you know, a kid that grew up in the 80s, um, for sure you've played this before. It's like mm-hmm. it's like playing with Legos or Hot Wheels. Mm-hmm. So it's the equivalent of Hot Wheels in in U.S. So... So everyone has has a Hot Wheel sometime in their life, right? Or at least know about it. So I have a lot of Hot Wheels. Yeah, yeah. So it's you know that a lot of people have fond memories of of Mini for WD. So you know that was our way into the door, and then that's when we start pitching more about our game, and um and then what else we did was uh you know we uh, we attended a lot of the game conferences um like Casual Connect. I think that's where I met you, Chris, the first yeah, time. Yeah, I believe so. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, Casual Connect, if, if you guys don't know, it's a, it's a, it's like a global indie, um, competition slash showcase for, you know, indie gamers. So they, they hold it in different cities every year. And the one I went to was in uh, Singapore. And there's actually a Casual Connect next month, uh, from the 16th to 18th of May. So that's where a lot of the indie developers. In Singapore, I should mention. In Singapore, yes. They do, they do it actually in a number of cities. Yeah. Uh, yeah. They're doing, they're doing Singapore next May. I don't know if you know this. Next year, it's Hong Kong. Yep. I know. So. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, actually, I was in contact with the, with the promoter. Uh, Not the promoter. I mean the sponsor. Mm -hmm. Uh, uh, Animoca Group. So they're Mm -hmm. sponsoring it next year in Hong Kong. So, you know, we showcased our game uh, in Casual Connect, and uh, it caught the attention of, of Apple. So, um, you know, it's a, fun, it's, a funny, it's a funny story. Um, you know, when you display all these games in conferences, you, you never know who approaches you, right? It could be a developer. <laughs> it, could be, it could be a press. It could be just like normal gamers, you know, just want to check out the What happened was we were uh, demoing Furball Rampage, our first game, uh, two years ago. Uh, in Casual Connect Singapore. And then, you know, I was just demoing it normal, you know, running through the paces. And there's this person that checked out a game and thought, hey, this, this game looks really neat. You know, uh, um, I haven't seen this before. You know, a, a little cute hamster that turns into this, like, monster that starts eating people and, like, pushing down buildings. That sounds pretty neat. And then she asked me, like, um, are, you know, uh, have you guys tried, you know, sending it to Apple for a featuring? And then, you know, we just started out. So we're like, I don't, even have an email from Apple, you know, I don't know who to contact. And they end up, you know, she's like, oh, you can contact me. I'm like, I'm from Apple. And then my eyes, my <laughs> eyes instantly just went, whoa. I was like, oh my God, I need to nail this. So I pitched her, you know, talked to her about how awesome the game is. And then she's like, this sounds amazing. Uh, how about, you know, I contact you again. And then by then I, I, I was like, can I get your card? And then Apple, the, the rep was like, oh, we don't give cards. We don't. Oh, yeah, yeah. They're real. Yeah. They're yeah. they're harsh like that. Yes, they're harsh. I'm like, oh, I'm like, ouch. But it's like it's okay. I have your card, so I'll contact you. And then fast forward like uh, uh like several weeks later, uh, she actually did email me uh for a meeting, and then it was she was in Hong Kong, so I went to Apple headquarters in Hong Kong, and then uh we did the meeting. But by then 
I already had Mini Legend in beta, in an early early alpha beta ish stage. So you know, I don't know how many shots I have at you know featuring. So we're like, so I kind of upsell upsold her mm-hmm. from Furbo Rampage to Mini Legend, saying you know this is the game to feature because this is one of the one of a kind game. It's like huge back in the 80s and 90s, and just told the whole story about how like you know we grew up playing these model cars, huge memories, fond memories of it. You know, now that, you know, I'm in my mid-30s, like, you know, we don't have time for any of these, you know. I still buy the toy, but, like, we just don't have time to play. And it'll be awesome. That's why we wanted to build this game so that we can still play with, you know, this type of, of in, in the digital form and still get, you know, the, the, the memories from playing the real thing. So, you know, I we pitched back and forth and eventually they agreed to feature us. So that was that was really awesome. Well, they never agree. Apple, Apple never agreed. If you oh no, no, you don't. You don't yeah. know until yeah, you don't features. know. You don't know. They're like, so don't why know. don't you? Why yeah. don't you give us all the materials yeah. we need yeah. for yeah. the feature, yeah. and yeah. we'll see. And then, like, the, yeah. and this is what people don't know. You don't know that you've been featured until yeah, you don't the day know. You, you don't open know. up your iPhone yeah. and you're featured, yeah. and that's how you know. They don't. They don't even send you a letter to be like, you're gonna no. be featured today. You just, yeah. oh look, we got featured. Like yes. That's exactly how it is. Yeah. So, so the featuring process, I can break that down. Basically, um, if if like they like your game enough, uh, you don't have to have meetings with them. It just so happened that we, we you know, it's just pure coincidence that they found us. So, uh, your game, and they want to feature you. They usually send you an email saying that you know your game has been selected, uh, nominated for featuring. Uh, could you send us the artwork? You know, it's a banner. You know, whatever, and you gotta send in the artwork. Uh, submit it through the the you know the Apple uh, iTunes Connect, mm-hmm. and then even then it says there's like it does not guarantee feature, so um and then they won't tell you time, no. Nope. But they usually give you a deadline of when you got to submit everything. So you know when we got that email, we we thought like hey that this sounds pretty legit by now, so but we still don't know, and then that's not when we launched our game. Uh, the first day it didn't get featured. I think the second day it didn't get featured, but on the third day, that's when the feature came in, and you know we were like super happy. Like I guess as a developer, like getting featured by either Apple or Google is like the best thing ever in the world. <laughs> I, you know the thing is it's it's moved from being that's the best thing in the world to being not getting featured is like the call of death. Like that's that's where it's it's really moved to like if you didn't get featured on Apple or Google. Pray, pray real hard because yeah. it's just yeah. really difficult to get anyone to know that you exist without that feature. And that feature is, it's exactly like you say, it's like, there's no guarantee, there's no nothing, you just, you know, and, and you just kind of give them the stuff and you, you pray, you know, and it, and it, and it's not like a, oh, I know a guy. And it's so, that's the worst part is like publishers will tell you this bullshit story and they'll be like, oh, we can get you featured. No, no, they can't. There's no publisher in the world that can guarantee you a feature because nobody does that but Apple and Google and they make that decision independent of anyone but themselves. Yep. Nobody, nobody, doesn't matter what they promise you, you, they can't get you featured. That's well, up to them. I, you know? I can, I can tell you basically the big publishers, they can guarantee it. But um, it is easier for them. Uh, it is easier. Like I've seen some big publishers that release games. Um, you know, you look at it; it's just it's really mediocre. But what what I will say yeah. is, some of the pu- I think the publishers can guarantee you that the feature team will look at your game. Yeah, I yeah. think that's the guarantee I think they that's can the give guarantee. you. Yeah, um, you, so, we can we can make sure that the people who decide whether or not games get featured will look at your game. But beyond yeah. that, they, nobody can make you any promises. Mm-hmm. And I've heard so many people sign crappy publishing deals because their publisher swore to them that they'd get featured. 
And and the other thing about a feature is a feature is not a feature, right? There's a worldwide feature, there's a yeah. nationwide feature, there's a regional feature, there's uh you know, there's sometimes you only get featured in one category and some of those features are a lot better than other features, right? Yeah. So basically if you're looking at Apple, there's basically three types of feature. So um one's the biggest banner, which is like the when you open the app store, it's right on the top banners, the huge one. That's like the holy grail. Yep. You know, that's the one that, that usually goes global. Uh, and then the second one, it's a smaller banner. That's still really good. That's still, uh, I think we never got featured, but we got this, the smaller banner. So, uh, that, that's really good already. And then the third type of feature is just the icon. It's just your icon, your game icon. And mm-hmm. usually those are for like, you know, if you had a really nice update or you have some new feet, you know, you've been featured before and they feature again, they usually put you in the icons. Yeah. And then, yeah, in different categories. Uh, as for, uh, Google Play, uh, Google Play has different segments, like it's a, even more broken down. Yep. So, you know, you could be featured on the main screen for the apps, you could be featured, uh, like a big banner, or you can feature it as an icon, or even you can be featured in specialty segments like Indie Corner, or, you know, and such. So, um, it depends. And, and all of these are broken region. down by region, right? So yeah. you may get, you may get the big banner feature in China, but I'm not China, but you may get the big banner feature in Japan, but you don't get the big banner feature in the UK, et cetera. So yes. there's, there's a lot of ways that this gets sliced. So, um, so when you, you know, when you do have a chance to, you know, uh, Apple or Google regarding feature, or you have a way of, you know, pitching to them, you know, try to always go for the global. And then um, at the same time, uh, besides global, also focus on your main market that you, you're aiming your game at. So if your game looks very westernized, um, you know, go for the, you know, the western western regions first, you know, uh, be- before you start pitching to the Asian regions. Uh, or if your game looks very Asian-y, now it's hard, you know, hard for U.S., the U.S. editorials to look at your game and go, oh, this suits the U.S., you know, environment. Yeah region you know just just try to you know sell to the the people that would actually look at it and besides looking at it have have a higher chance of actually featuring you going going back a couple uh minutes in the conversation though i think there was another really great lesson for young indie developers to take out of this which is never assume who you're talking to you know this this whole story started with you were talking to someone and you didn't know who they were and you were showing them their game and lo and behold, this was somebody on the Apple Feature Committee, and you didn't know that when you yeah, started showing them the so, game, right? So, like, just be friendly, and just you know, if someone wants to check out your game, it's it's amazing in itself because like, yep. you attend these these game conferences, and there's literally like hundreds of games on the show on the show floor. So anyone that wants to you know spend time, stop by, and actually look at your game, it's it's a it's a great way to share you know your product. And, you know, you should be happy and you should be grateful that they're looking at your game because, you know, because I I go to some of these conferences and and some people, you know, they just put the game like like, like some pamphlets and then just leave. And then, you know, what's the point? Or even worse, I've I've gone to some of these conferences and you walk up and you're like, can I play your game? And they're like, yeah, whatever. And they're, they're, (laughs) they're like busy answering mail on Facebook. And you're like, you're at a convention. Show me your game, dude. You yeah. know, you don't you don't know who I am. I could be the Apple person, and you're blowing me off because yeah. you gotta, you know, look at some cat pictures on Facebook. You're here for a reason, dude. So like, what what I would suggest is that I I know for like a lot of the small teams, you know, you talk about maybe two three man teams. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you have a conference to attend and you already have uh, a booth, I know it's very hard for you know to, for you to like look after the booth and reply to your daily task. So I would suggest if you ever have a booth, 
get at least two people. Like like or yeah. or you know try to get your whole team to ten, so you can as always have one person that can always talk to everyone, and at, le- at least have two. You know because you know if you're talking to one guy, another guy walks up and wants to look at your game, you have to you know either wait or you know or you gotta you know have them check it out on their own. So the more people you have at the booth, actually, the better it is. You know we've just- actually had really good luck um, at the last few. We've been to the last couple packs events. And the thing that we forget at those kind of events is, like, for us as developers, it's easy to get tickets to get into PAX. But for the yeah. audience, it's difficult to get PAX tickets. It and is. when we get a booth, they give us five free tickets. I don't have five people at PAX. And so I go on my community Discord for my games, and I'm like, I got free tickets to PAX to come work my mm. booth. And so if you come to a, a, a you know one of our booths at a show, there's me and then four volunteers that we brought in for free PAX tickets, and those guys are actually really committed. They're really into it. They're really they're trying to be helpful. They're part of your game community. They're people that come from you know they're people who loved your game, and they actually tend to be really good people at booths. I've had really good luck uh, with bringing volunteers. You know not not you know but it's got to be someone who gives a crap about your game. But yeah. we, we've had people who are part of our gaming community that are into that, that when I said, hey, why don't you come down and I'll buy you dinner and I'll give you some free tickets to the show, mm-hmm. they're, they're happy to do it. And and so we always have like four or five people in the booth, and that makes it you know a lot more energetic and active. It works pretty well. Yeah, that's that's a pretty cool thing. I should, I should try that next time. <laughs> I, I totally – it was not my idea. I totally idea. stole that idea from Witching Hour, who are some of the best okay. marketers down in Singapore, and they were doing that for their games, and I heard about them doing that, and I was like, I should totally do that. So I totally stole the idea. Okay. All right, I'm running low on time. Mm-hmm. Um, I want to get to the, my, my last question, which is, again, there's uh, this, the, and, and even more so now that I've heard what we've talked about. This would be a great show for young indies to listen and get some great sort of actionable mm-hmm. feedback. What are sort of your top two or three, if you're going to go start a game studio or if you're in a young game studio and you're struggling and you're trying to figure out how to make this all work, what's your what's your best advice? Okay, um, there's several things that you got to look into. First of all, um, you know everyone who gets into the gaming industry loves games, right? So that's a de- you know that's de facto. You don't you don't need to care about that. What you need to care about is how you run a business. After all, it's a business. You know, if you're thinking, oh, I'm just going to make games for fun. Uh, you know, unless you don't expect to make any money, then don't do it. You know, if you want to make you, <laughs> if, if you want to make it this your livelihood, you got to look at the economics. You got to look at your financial stuff. Do you have money yourself? Do you have savings? If you don't, then you got to find a partner that has the money. Mm-hmm. So, you know, if you have the knowledge, you have the tech, uh, you, have, you have the talent to do it, but you don't have the money, go out and find the money. All right. And if you have the money, uh, but you don't have the, t- you know, the, the, you know the the people to do it, the talent. Then go find the talent. You you need both. So another thing you gotta look at is is keeping lean. You have to be lean. So whether that be working out from your house, from your apartment, or you know um, a co-working, you know co-share workspace, or just you know whatever you can do, you know out of back of a car or whatever, whatever works, do it. Keep your overhead low as possible. Like even to this point now, you know we do we do well, it, well enough to sustain. But the thing is, uh, we're very careful about hiring. So mm. um, uh, even growing our team, you know, uh, don't grow too fast or too early. You know, try to establish a core team of people who are very, very dedicated, and they know what they're getting into. Because if you hire uh, or or if you partner with someone that don't know what they're getting into, they might quit like four months down the line because they don't see any results or whatever. You know, game is a long, you know, it's a long arduous process. It's a grind. So if you don't know what you're getting into, 
or your partner doesn't know what they're getting into, you're going to have some problems down the line. So build that core team that knows what their product is, set a timeline. You have to hit those timelines. You know, the more, the longer you spend, the more money you're burning. Mm. So once you have that, and you need to find a good topic, and uh, and one more thing, I know like not everyone buys into this, but if you're doing mobile, um, you know, free to play. I I know it's not the most fun way of doing games, <laughs> but it's it's what makes you alive. It keeps you alive. You know, whether it be in-app purchases or ad-based, you have to have monetization done very, very well. So what you can do is like if even if you're making a game for like the Western market, go look at some, you know, Chinese-based games or Asian-based games. They know how to market the crap out of the game. So once you have money, then you can focus on how to make it fun. You know, like our game, like it's still it's a fun game, but inside we've done so many things within the monetization model that ensures that we make money from day one, so that we don't sit around and just look at you know oh we have like so many so many downloads, but we're not making jack jack okay, so you have to make money because it's a business in the end. So once you have that, then that's it's about how you you maintain these financials and how you sustain. So as an indie, just don't die. You know, I, you I have to interject. And... <laughs> uh, this is this is incredibly ironic because this interview is going to come right after uh, like two podcasts that I did where I talk about how much I hate free to play. <laughs> so it the the irony of at this point me having an interview and something like, what you need to do is free to play games. Um, you know, I I think I I'm not sure I'm willing to go with you 100% on it's got to be free to play, but I will go with you 100% on you have to think about how you're going to make money on this. You have to mm-hmm. think about how your monetization works, and I think. Yep. There are there are a number of different business models uh, yeah, that yeah. work with different kinds of games, yeah. and I think you are absolutely right that one of the things I really see indies failing with, and I see I, I can remember I was at the, the last Casual Connect and I walked uh, this was the one in Berlin, and I, I went and I looked at a bunch of indie games and I, I would say eighty percent of them I just kind of looked at it and I said how are you making money on this yeah. I mean I just I just yeah. couldn't even figure out where does the money come in? Where do you expect yeah. somebody to pay for this? And I, I guess if you're, if you're in the, in the games as a hobby, the, the, they were great. But if, you, if you're in the running a game studio, it's like you say, you've got to start the whole process with where does the money come in on this yeah. thing? And whether it's so, a free to play model or a different model, you've got to have something there. So I'm not pushing free to play, but I'm just saying like, you got to have your monetization yeah. set. So if you're doing a, a paid game and and you have a very you know not every game is suitable for for free to play right no. so if your your game is very story based or story driven or whatever go with the paid model but make sure that you have a way to monetize you know or, or what lures people to, to to pay for your game if you don't have it then people are just going to bypass it so um you know in the end you got to know that it's a business you know it's fun the first you know year or so you know when you're starting a game company. But then, you know, cost builds up quickly. And when you're not making a lot of money or you're making no money at all, or even on top of that, you're shelling out more and more money, it's not fun. Yeah, so, you, it's not fun yeah. once you start not being able to pay your rent. Yeah, that, it yeah. starts to get real not fun real fast. Yeah, so, so you know, make sure the big the takeaway is just, you know, make sure you have a way to monetize your game. That's the biggest thing. And once you can monetize, you know, um, Stick to a very lean overhead. You know, you know, only spend on parts that you think it's worth it. So if you're spending on ads, make sure you have an, you know, uh, a tracking software that can track, you know, how much you're spending, uh, the the pay the players that paid, you know, uh, or you know, the the, the cost acquisition that you've done through the ads are, you know, those guys are are giving you, you know, positive return on investment. 
you know, or else you're just, you know, blindly throwing money away in, in marketing without any return. So make sure that you know where the money's going and you know that the money you spent comes back. Mm. Yep. All right. Well, that's all great info. That's all the time that we have. This is incredibly great stuff. I'm going to put this on a bunch of places where, where the indies hang out and say, like, look, here's a guy who knows how to do it. You want to run your indie studio? Here it is. So thank you so much for all of this great stuff. Uh, thanks. Yeah, thank you, Chris. And that's the show today. I hope you guys enjoyed that, especially for uh, young game developers or people thinking about starting a game studio. I think there's a wonderful, almost step-by-step talk about how to go about that process and build that. So I hope there's some people out there who heard this that are interested in it, people who are interested in Hong Kong or the game industry. I hope that was good for you. If there's other stuff you'd like to hear, if there's stuff you're sick of hearing, let me know about it. There's a comment section wherever you found this podcast. There's also a link to the Discord where you can talk to me directly. Do that thing. Put us on your Twitter. Put us on your Facebook. Let people know that we're out there. Give us the ratings, all the other good stuff, and we'll see you on the next episode.